So I wanted to talk a bit this evening about uh, breaking down monoliths. Uh, so what do I mean by that? <laughs> well, I want to I want to start with a story uh, to kind of share what how I what I think some of these mental monoliths are and why we might create them uh, and what we can do about that. So. I've always enjoyed riding a bike, cycling. And, uh, you know, a few years ago, I bought a new bike. Um, I had an old mountain bike. I want to do some road uh, road cycling. And so I bought a new bike. And then, of course, I, I started looking into, well, what what other things should I have, um, you know, with this new bike? What are, you know, are there any accessories I need or anything like that? So um, obviously a, a new helmet. You know, I had one, but I got a, I got a new helmet. Um, I tend to replace the saddles, you know, the seats on my, my bikes, um, just, you know, to make, get something that's a bit more comfortable, uh, got new pedals. Uh, and with this new bike, I decided to get pedals that were, you know, clipless. So you actually had a cleat on your shoes that you could kind of snap in snap out give you a bit more efficiency as you're pedaling. So of course that meant new shoes, right? Um, you know, sometimes when you're cycling on a longer ride, it can be comfortable to have some of those padded bike shorts or even the bibs. They call them bibs. It's basically shorts with suspenders, kind of like a, an adult singlet or like a onesie, <laughs> right, that you're wearing to, to keep you comfortable as you ride. Um, of course, because I was riding on, on roads, you know, by traffic, I wanted to have some high visibility um, clothing. And so there were, you know, some shirts that I would normally wear when I was riding and, and uh, you know, not having hair, you know, I shaved my head. I, I uh, would normally wear a do rag, a bandana, kind of under my uh, helmet, and found like, oh, like they have cycling caps. Like these are kind of cool. So I bought a cycling cap to wear and everything. And anyway, all of this stuff, right, to get ready, you know, special clothing, special this, special that, all of the preparation. Um, I kind of made bike riding a thing, like a capital T thing. Instead of just hopping on a bike and going, it was like, well, now I have to do all this stuff. And it was great a lot of the time. But there were also times where I sort of looked at it and I was like, ah, do I really want to, you know, put on all the, the, the gear and, and everything like that and load up my bike to ride out to the place I had in mind and, you know, then go out and, and go and, and everything. And, you know, like I said, I, I kind of made it a thing. And there were times where I would sort of talk myself out of going because cycling, you know, was not just hopping on a bike and going, but it was all this other stuff, right? But I realized, like, oh, I can just hop on my bike and go and have a good time and it's great exercise and I don't need all that other stuff, right? But it, it made it a thing. And for what it's worth, you know, I've, I've done something similar with meditation, too, where I kind of felt, oh, to, to meditate, I have to, you know, I have to be on the cushion. I have to sit for a certain amount of time at a certain time of day, certain posture, certain mudras, you know, with my hands and certain breathing and everything like that. So maybe this is something that I, <laughs> I do a lot of. But I, I recognized, you know, with cycling, with meditation, that I created a bit of a mental monolith, right? Now, what is a monolith? The definition of monolith, if you if you would look it up, 
um, you know, mono meaning one, lith, lithic meaning related to stone. So, you know, the, the, the first definition of monolith is something formed of a single large block of stone. So big pillars in, in old buildings that are carved, right? Uh, out of like granite and things like that. Um, those are monolithic. Uh, but it also come has come to mean kind of in, in our, you know, our, our vernacular, in our society, anything that's large, powerful, and intractably, intractably indivisible and uniform, right? So anything that's this big, you know, unit, this big uh, uh, thing, right? And I think mentally, there's almost a third definition, um, you know, and I would say, an, an, a, a, you know, an overwhelming mental construct that we create gets in our way right like i said i know i do this a lot but i imagine that i'm i'm not alone i imagine that there are are other people that for for whom this is a pretty common exercise right and so I, I wanted to share some thoughts around these kinds of mental monoliths right and some thoughts on breaking them down and why we why we build them in the first place so as I see it, there are really two main kinds of monoliths that we create in our minds. One is, um, you know, making something into a thing, kind of as I described with, with bike riding, or thinging something, right? Capital T, thinging something. And the other kind is a generalization. I'll kind of give some examples of, of both of these. Um, so thinging something, right? There's actually a... a you know, I've always loved A. A. Milne's original Winnie the Pooh books because they're they're written in such a charming way, and he actually has, gives a great example in those stories of this kind of thinging, where he, you know, very much in the the way that I'm kind of describing it, will capitalize, you know, the first letter of words in a phrase that are meant to be significant to the characters in the book. So, for instance, um, you know, when uh, Winnie the Pooh is out looking he's he's aware or he's on the lookout for hostile animals capital h capital a right because that idea that fear of running into a hostile animal is looming large in in his brain um when he got caught in the the entrance way to rabbit's home uh, he asked for someone to read him a capital s capital b sustaining book to kind of help him keep his his fortitude right uh when he and piglet were out hunting for the heffalump, they built a, you know, very deep pit, VDP, very deep pit, right? So again, just sort of a, a literary way to describe, you know, when, when something was important to those characters. And so he thinged those things. It's kind of a clever way to thing those things, right? But we do that in, in different ways in our, in our lives. And as a society, we thing things. Um, one thing that I've seen get thinged uh, <laughs> over the last decade uh, are, are winter storms, right? We name them now, right? We give them names the same way that we give hurricanes names. And we've been doing that for a while. I, I uh, you know, the hurricane I remember most recently had an impact on, on my home with flooding and things like that was Hurricane Sandy. Um, I, I know Hurricane Agnes looms large in, you know, uh, the, the U.S. in our minds because... You know, I wasn't even alive, but I know Agnes in 72, you know, and I know in my basement there were six feet of water because someone wrote Agnes 72, you know, six feet of water in my basement um, of the house where I live now. And but over the last 10 years, they've started doing that with winter storms as well. So now we name winter storms and, and 
you know, so instead of a big snowstorm or blizzard, it's, you know, winter storm Jonas. And there, there is a conventional use in that, you know, where you can say historically to reference like, well, you know, Jonas dumped three feet of snow in 2016. Um, or if you're telling news about it or, hey, like this storm, you know, winter storm Brad is set to dump six feet of snow or something like that. Um, but I think an unexpected consequence of that is that you know now we start to associate any of our you know fears or concerns of the disruption or the disrupt destruction of one of those big winter storms you know bws big winter storm with any named storm so because jonas was named and now we remember the name jonas now there's another storm and let's say they you know call it something now we're going to be thinking like, oh, it's going to be as bad as the worst one that I remember, right? Because we've thinged those things. We've named them. So it's not just a snowstorm. It's a named snowstorm. And that's serious, right? Um, you know, and I noticed this the other day online, I, I uh, something about an article about the heat wave that we had a, a week or so ago um, caught my eye and I, I read through it. And I don't always look at comments online because they can be a little tricky <laughs> but i decided for whatever reason to say like well how are what are people saying in, in response to this article on the heat wave and it was interesting because people sort of were, were having that same kind of response to you know like we're kind of thinging this heat wave you know and those talks of of you know climate change and global warming and things like that and um but people were also saying like well but it's July, you know, like the, the 90s that we're getting, you know, in, in their area of the world. Like, this is not unusual for us to have these temperatures in July. It's just summer. We just say it's summer, right? Um, and I know that there were, you know, areas that had record-breaking heat. Um, but for these individuals, you know, they're like, it's just, it's summer. Uh, or, or weather maps are like, you know, it used to be if you'd have hot weather, you'd have a little smiling sun icon on the weather map on, on TV. But now it's this just like deep, you know, blackish, blood red that's for the hottest areas of the country. It almost looks violent, right? And, you know, that's not to say that it wasn't hot, because absolutely it was hot. It's not to say that we shouldn't be careful when it's hot out, because absolutely we should. But I felt like the article was more aimed at, at creating you know, a sense of weather as, you know, weather to be feared, capital W, B, and F, weather to be feared if A. A. Milne was writing about this heat wave, um, as opposed to just like, it's hot, <laughs> you know, it's summer and it's, it's going to be hot. So, you know, be mindful of what you plan to do outside and, and how much electricity you're consuming to keep yourself cool. Um, you know, and lastly, we, we thing incidents, you know, past or future incidents, something small we make into a big thing you know if it's a big thing we make it a life-defining thing for us <clears throat> you know and, and sometimes we'll look back at a period in our lives and say like oh that's when things were good right that monolith of purity when when we were younger or a different time in our in our past All right i talked about the halcyon days in a previous talk you know, the kind of purified way, a view of how things used to be. And we're like, you know, it's made up only of the good things we remember. None of the bad or inconvenient ones. 
but we craft that into this nice shiny monolith and say like oh that that's when things were good that's when i was happy right or it could be some small thing coming up in the next week in the next month you know a, a busy day at work that we know is going to be hard a presentation we have to make a tough meeting that we need to run or be a part of and it becomes that meeting that presentation that appointment that we're going to and we think about it all day all week or all month when we're putting our calendar together and it becomes this looming you know dark monolith in our minds so those are thinging types of monoliths uh, the other kind that I want to talk about are generalizations right and we see we see this a lot right and it's very easy to generalize um, you know, someone always does this thing. Uh, we label someone as, you know, this kind of person because of something they did once or because of something they did at a certain time in their lives, you know, a certain situation or relationship. Or all people who look or act or speak a certain way are all the same. You know, if you voted for this person, we're not going to get along. If you dress a certain way, I'm going to avoid you. Um, in, in psychology, this is referred to as a confirmation bias, right? Where we, we tend to only take in information or be on the lookout for information that confirms what we think we already know about certain kinds of people. Um, and then we make those monoliths bigger and bigger, right? Uh, and only more solid and more real. Now, before I poo-poo all monoliths, all mental monoliths, uh, there there are some you know, ways that thinking this way serves us well. Um, you know, in terms of making something into a thing, like we honestly do that as a part of our liturgical practice, right? And we build a centering space as part of our reorientation process um, to orient ourselves towards our true self. We, we build that space, that altar, you know, with certain objects um, to help us acknowledge our true self, our Buddha nature. And in, in that acknowledgement, the mundane becomes very significant. It becomes thinged in a way, right? Um, you know, personally, all of us, I'm sure we have certain places or days or songs um, that are special to us, right? They mean something to us from our past. Um, but the important thing to remember about these capital T things is that they only matter because they point to something else. They are not intrinsically important, right? And, and what else do we refer to as not intrinsically existent, right? Our ego selves, right? Our ego self is not intrinsically existent. Um, it's a subjective and conventional expression of our true selves. It points to something that is um, bigger, right? A lot of times these other monoliths, these, these things that we think in our minds are are big in and of themselves and we fixate on them and we obsess over them and that's not particularly healthy because they cause us to suffer right in terms of making generalizations certainly there are ways that thinking in a general way can be helpful you know if you burn yourself getting something out of the oven it's useful to assume that all things coming out of the oven are going to be hot, right? And you're going to take measures to ensure that doesn't happen. You'll wear, you know, oven mitts or you'll, you'll wait um, to get something out of the oven. Uh, similarly, if you have an experience where you go on a road trip and you get a flat tire or you run out of gas, 
the next time you plan a trip, you're going to have a, 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 you know, a, a jack and a spare tire, a, a pump, maybe air pump. Um, you're going to stop at a gas station before your, you know, gas gauge gets too low. Um, so you'll take some, some measures to make sure you avoid getting stuck in that same way. So that is a, an okay generalization to make that you should be prepared for those kinds of things um, to happen. You don't want to over-prepare, right? Um, where now you're terrified of going out because of all the things that might go wrong, right? That's not. That's also not a very healthy way to live. But the important thing about cars and ovens is that they are electrical and mechanical and therefore largely predictable. People, on the other hand, you know, about which we make a lot of our generalizations, let's be honest, are conscious, not mechanical, and unique. Uh, far more unique than one car to another, right? So be careful about making those kinds of assumptions. Be open to understanding, you know, why uh, people might act the way that they act. And be open to forgiving people who've, who've wronged you in the past. Um, and, you know, that also doesn't mean, you know, if you have a, an ex who hurt you or was abusive or anything like that. Forgiveness does not mean going back to that person and trying to, you know, make things the, the way that you thought they should be. Forgiveness is simply releasing yourself from the control that someone may have over you. Because refusing to forgive someone still gives them control over you. Um, and that may be a process. I'm not saying that that's something that is necessarily easy to do. Um, but generalizations and, and using those experiences to say, well, everyone who is like that person is going to act like that person um, without any variation uh, is not necessarily a very useful way to live. So, why do we create these mental monoliths. Uh, well, as you know, in our in our practice, we have um, mindfulness models that explain some of the thought processes that help give rise to the beliefs that give rise to the thoughts and then to the actions and, and to the results of those actions um, and create that cycle of samsara, right? And the, the model that I would, would bring up in, in a situation like this where we're, we're thinking and creating generalizations is really the the model of perfection versus wholeness right perfection looking at the world very much through an either or you know perfection or bust kind of uh, attitude versus wholeness which is an integrated way of of living which is both and you know I accept and integrate everything not just the things that are behave the way that I think that they should behave because right? we often feel that way about the world. We have expectations. We think things should go a certain way. And then if they don't go that way, well, now the world is wrong. you know, Or we've been wronged in, in some way, shape, or form. And perfection, though, is such a tempting thing. And it's so easy to imagine something perfect. Because perfection is part of our imagination. Right? You know, probably a lot of us have been asked, like, oh, what's your what's your ideal mate? Or what's your perfect first date, right? You know, questions they would ask on, like, uh, uh, those those old relationship shows. Um, you know, and, oh, perfect mate is 
this, this, and this, and you name all these things, and the ideal first date is this, this, and this, and then you're holding out for that perfect person who doesn't exist, right? Or you, you go out on a date with someone, and you're like, it has to be this way, and it doesn't go the way that you want, and then you're disappointed, right? Either or. Either it's perfect or forget about it, right? Perfection is also very easy to hold in our minds because it's very one-dimensional. Despite being very pristine and ideal, it's also very flat, right? Um, it's very binary. It is or it isn't. If X, then Y. If I do this, then it has to go this way. Or else it's not perfect and therefore it's a failure. If someone wears, you know, this clothing, likes this sports team, talks this way, they're always a certain way. That's very easy to think and make up those kinds of weird rules about, about everyone around you. And that, oh, well, if I encounter those people, I need to react the same way to anyone. Anyone and everyone who's like that. By contrast, wholeness can be much sloppier, much more unpredictable, much more three-dimensional, right? But it's so much more realistic and inclusive. And in our practice... It's very important for us to be realistic. We are in pursuit of what is real and true, right? So we want a worldview that is realistic. And we want a worldview from a, a place of oneness that is inclusive, that accounts for everything, you know? I can take a bike ride, and maybe I have in my head that the bike ride is going to go a certain way, you know? 72 degrees on a nice flat, <laughs> right? But Maybe instead of making the left turn that I expected to make, I take the right turn. And then I get caught in the rain. And then I get muddy. But I meet other riders, and we have a great time. And it could be the best ride ever and stick in my mind because it wasn't what I expected. Right? Because I took in the whole thing. And not just the elements that I thought I wanted to take in. You know, someone can root for the other team and be a good person. You know, not root for the other team or they can get the heck out of here, right? It could be a record-breaking hot day and it could be a good day to sit in the shade and read a book. Doesn't mean that your plans need to be ruined. It could be a really tough day at work and it taught you a new skill. Because we don't often get to choose how much of life comes our way. So we should try to leave ourselves open to what we might be able to make of that experience and what we may be able to experience. Uh, the last story about monolithing <laughs> that I want to tell, and, and maybe I've told this before, so forgive me if you've heard this before. But I, uh, so I, I'm, I'm a musician. I, I like to write music, and and I, you know, used to write a lot of music in the past. Um, but I've had a harder time doing it the last, you know, few years. I used to be in a band, and and since then I just don't write as often as I do. But honestly, you know, I, I had in my head, you know, uh, speaking of monolithing, that music was something that I could do if I was writing about, like, love or loss, right? So, you know, when my wife and I were dating, wrote a ton of music, you know, so in love, <laughs> right? When my wife passed away, I wrote a lot of music about that hurt and what I was going through. When I eventually started dating again, I wrote more music about that kind of the ups and downs of that process and, and things like that, you know, new relationships or when relationships get complicated lots of 
fodder for, for creative expression, right? But over the last few years, I've kind of put less emphasis on dating, so it's not something that I've been doing. And, and with that, I haven't really been writing a lot of music. So songwriting became a very, you know, one-dimensional, monolithic thing for me, where it's like, songs have to be when there's a relationship, or getting out of one, right? That's when I can write. And if I'm not doing that, then I can't write. But despite all of that, uh, one evening I had a tune just kind of hit me. And so, you know, I hummed it into my phone, record it, so I'd come back to it, and, and you know, it was, a it was over a year, actually, that I was working on this song, because just nothing would come, but the song was still there, I was like, I feel like there's something there, and I started to feel it kind of come together, I struggled with the topic, and then when, when one did hit me, um, the song started to form, but boy, I was really having a hard time with the lyrics, because I had a certain, you know, feeling for the verse. And I'm like, my lyrics have to fit that phrasing. And I was struggling with it. And I was, you know, writing down lyrics and crossing them out. It was just a real, it was very frustrating. And then I realized, I was like, how ridiculous that I'm, you know, hamstringing myself and, and not letting myself put, you know, lyrics into this song that don't fit what I had in mind for the verse. This is my song. If anyone is able to change it, I am, right? You know, I built this monolith of the song had to be a certain way. You know, perfection versus wholeness, either or. Um, the, the perfection mindset, either or. I, I had it in my head that it had to be a certain way. And once I tore down that monolith, then suddenly the song came out. Within a week, the, the, the lyrics were written, and the song came together. And not to be too cheesy but how we live our lives is our song right we we play it for ourselves we play it for those around us it's our art that we put into the world and it's very easy to be afraid of making that art because we feel we have to be perfect we feel it's either or it goes this way or it's not worth doing Right, and we stare at those monoliths and we get frozen by that need for perfection. It's very easy to come up with, but impossible to achieve. But I would encourage you all to keep living your life as your song. Right? Keep doing the work. Embrace those ups and downs because they're going to come either way. Nothing is permanent. Right? Sometimes life is messy and inconsistent, but that song is valuable because it's whole and it includes everything. So I hope that that was helpful.